Well, hello and welcome everyone to Ridge Church Online. We're so excited that you're joining us online wherever and whenever you may be tuning in from. Uh, this week, we're continuing on in our series in the Lord's Prayer called 60 for praying the way that Jesus taught us to. And one last time as we close out this series, we'd love to invite you from home to pray along out loud if you want to or in your hearts as we read the Lord's Prayer together. Here's the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Amen and welcome as we hop in to this message and this series and the final line of the Lord's Prayer. Now, if you're watching this or listening to this on podcast or whatever it may be, and, and that reading of the prayer and that kind of liturgical thing and this very almost seemingly religious thing feels a little weird to you, I want you to know you're not alone. It's not weird. It's okay to be a little bit uncomfortable with the way we sometimes do things as Christians. I remember when I first became a Christian, when I was a teenager, there was all sorts of things that didn't really make total sense to me. And maybe that's your story too. If you didn't grow up in the church, you have these things that that after you came to know Jesus, you started to learn about what it meant to be a Christian, even culturally, not necessarily theologically, but what it meant culturally to be a Christian um, that just didn't make sense to you. I remember when I became a Christian, the word season all of a sudden started getting used a lot. Everyone's describing like, I'm in a season of this, or I'm in a season of that. And, and I was like, when I grew up, I was like, no, there's four seasons. I don't know why everybody's in a season of this, that, or the other thing. You start to hear about weird cartoons with vegetables. You start to hear about all these different things that you maybe weren't as aware of before you became a Christian. And one of those things that I remember specifically not being aware of or not really knowing much about was this idea of something called a doxology. And the way that I learned what a doxology was actually came about when I was dating Jaleesa, who's now my wife. See, we were dating and her family has an amazing legacy of people who have followed Jesus for a long time. And they have a really cool tradition that they do when they gather for a holiday meal. Her mom is someone who I know loves this tradition. And it's, it's one that I think is really, really beautiful now. But, but the way I learned it was actually a little bit overwhelming. See, Jaleesa and I have been dating for a few months. And like anyone who's dating for a few months, you have to start doing the things that dating couples do. And I got invited after a couple months to come to family's Thanksgiving dinner, right? And so not only are you getting a chance to meet the family and make first impression on aunts and uncles and cousins and nieces and nephews and all these kind of things, you're, you're actually getting an opportunity to know the family a little bit of the person that you're dating. You get to watch these things and learn many things about Jaleesa's family that day, including something called orange salad made with marshmallows that is absolutely disgusting. But the other thing that I learned about Jaleesa and her family was something they do to open many of their gatherings together and pray for a meal. Rather than just having someone say grace, as oftentimes we do before a meal, a quick word of thanks to God or whatever it may be, the family actually sings the doxology right? We sang it here at church just a few weeks ago. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. 
that kind of song that we sing all together. It's this beautiful thing. And I remember being there and being so taken aback. First of all, I'd never heard that song in my life. I had no idea what was happening. And I just remember this moment where we're standing there and all of a sudden somebody says, let's pray. And I'm getting ready to bow my head and do the thing and be respectful and make a good impression on her family and all that kind of thing. And all of a sudden there's like 20 voices harmonizing these lyrics that I've never heard before in my life. Everyone starts singing this thing called the doxology. And in that moment, I was a little panicked, but since then, I've gotten a chance to learn what a doxology actually is. And you might recognize that word from church or from being around here for any amount of time, but if you don't know what it means, that's totally okay. It's kind of a strange word. Doxology comes from the Greek words for honor and glory, which is doxa, and for language or speaking, logia. So quite literally, the concept of a doxology is, is not just a hymn that we love to sing. It's not just the end of a prayer, or the beginning of a prayer. What it quite literally is, based on the Greek language that we get the word from, a specific form of prayer that speaks honor, that gives language of glory and honor to something or someone. A doxology is glory speak. And so what a doxology then becomes it is a form of prayer, is a style of prayer, or is at least a piece of prayer where we ascribe honor and glory and majesty to God. And it can come in a form of a song like many of us know. It can come in the way that we conclude a prayer. It can come in a written prayer, whether that's something from like a book like Valley of Vision or pre-written prayers that are helpful to a believer's heart as they pray. It can come in a number of different forms. But if we look in our Bibles today at the end of the Lord's Prayer as we close it this week, what we'll see is that the Lord's Prayer, at least in some way, shape, or form, itself has a doxology. So if you have your Bibles or apps, you can open or turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue to consider these 64 words that really do have the power to shape our lives. Let me read it for you one more time from beginning to end. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. But then at the very end there, depending on what translation of the Bible you're reading, whether that's be it paper or on your phone, or if you're just listening along, you may not be aware of this. But depending on your translation, you may or may not see a line that we will be looking at today that may or may not appear in your Bible. It says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. This is the way that we close the Lord's Prayer as we've read every week on a Sunday morning here at church, as we've read every week as part of this sermon series. This is the glory speak with which we end the Lord's Prayer. And this closing line, depending on the translation, falls with a footnote letting you know that some manuscripts add this line. Right? It might be that it's in there and you look down and it says some manu- this is only present in later manuscripts. Or, or it might be that that line's not even there, but there's a little manuscript. And down below it says some manuscripts add the line and then it has this in there. 
And if you're confused or cringing because we're talking about footnotes, I totally understand. I'm only a few years removed from being in school, but anyone who has recently been in school or is currently in school knows the stress of footnoting, whether that's trying to format it for the papers you're writing or navigating it as you read a book. I'll never forget one time when I was reading a book for um, my schooling and and there was this footnote, and I remember the, the sentence or the paragraph that I had just read was really complicated, and it was really hard to understand. I was having a hard time kind of getting what's the point, and I, I don't understand what's being said here. And, and so I see the footnote, and like any kind of mature, intellectual, academic type person, I go, oh, I'm going to follow the footnote. I, I want to see where the rabbit hole leads on this one. And what this footnote was for this paragraph in this book essentially said, um, here is 10 other books you need to read to have any beginning of grasp on this theological concept. And there's no point in you reading this paragraph until you've read these 10 other books. Please refer to them now. And I remember being like, whoa, one paragraph, one footnote, 10 more books of reading I now have to do just to get the concept. And so I totally understand if the idea of a footnote and all these things that, that can kind of seem confusing, especially if you're new to reading the Bible, that's okay. Here's what I want to explain to you about that footnote. What you need to know is that many of the earliest manuscripts we have that form the scriptures that we now read in the English language today, the Bible was not written in English. This part of the Bible was written in Greek, the, the earliest manuscripts, the earliest evidences of this writing that we have today do not include this line. They do not include the line, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And there's lots of discussion between many people who are much smarter than me about exactly how and when this doxology became a part of the traditional Lord's Prayer and why we now have it in our Bibles, whether by footnote or just with a note that it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. But John Calvin, the great theologian, the great reformer, someone who much of early, not early, um, but reformed um, Christian thought comes from, is actually the one who notes that this line may not have been present in our earliest manuscripts, but in his words, it is so appropriate to this place that it ought not to be omitted from the prayer. And remember, the Lord's Prayer, as we've talked about all the way through this series, is not about saying a magic set of words that gets God to do a certain thing. It's not about these words being any more special or whatever that it may be. It's a framework for what it looks like for us to enter into a relationship with God in the context of prayer. It's how Jesus has distilled down the essence of what prayer is as a launch pad into our prayer Lives. Here's how the author J.I. Packer describes it in his incredible little book on praying the Lord's Prayer when he writes. He says this, The doxology with which we round off the Lord's Prayer is not in the best manuscripts. Nevertheless, it is the best tradition. Doxologies pop up all over the Bible and we see how praise and prayer grow out of, lead into, and stir up one another. So with that in mind, understanding that, that you're going to see this footnote, you're going to see this thing, we actually think that this is a phrase, this is a part of the Lord's Prayer that is worth our consideration because whether or not it was in the earliest manuscripts in the Bible, what it is is a clear and beautiful picture of what prayer can look like and how prayer can operate. So we can actually consider this final line, which if you're paying close attention, you'll notice is basically a repetition of the first couple lines of the prayer. 
See, along with those first few lines of the prayer, which draw us into worship and revere God's name as beautiful and holy and good, we see that these lines are trying to create a sandwich effect, right? What's the beginning of the prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed or glorified be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's this petition, it's this desire that God's name would be glorified. God's name would be lifted up, that his kingdom would come. But here on the back end of the prayer, what do we find? The same kind of cry. For yours is the kingdom. For yours is the power. For yours is the glory. And what it does is it creates almost like a sandwich or a framing or a bookend effect on the Lord's prayer. And see, if you have been around Christianity for a long time and you know all that stuff about doxologies and this, that, and the other thing, you probably know some of the many different ways that people have formed to kind of hone in on what prayer is and how we do it. I remember when I was an early Christian, I got taught this thing called ACTS, right? A-C-T-S. It's easy to remember because it's an acronym. It's called ACTS and it's how you pray and you do adoration, then you do confession, and then you do thanks, and then you do supplication where you, you ask for what you need. I heard of another one recently that's been really helpful that I've actually been trying in my own prayer life, this pattern that actually is the word prayer, P-R-A-Y, where we praise, where we, we give God honor, where we praise him for who he is and what he's done, where we repent, the R, where we confess our sins and, and ask Jesus to work in us to heal those things. Ask, A, where we, where we ask God to do the things that we desire and that we hope he would do, and then yield, where we admit that we are not in control. And, and there's all sorts of different things that people have done. I knew someone once who, who did uh, all their prayer as journaling. They wrote it all out. But what they did is they had a selection of pens and, and every pen was a different color. And so different forms of prayer, they would write in different colors. Confession was blue and um, Thanksgiving was red and answered prayer was green and, and desires for people who don't know Christ yet could be this color or whatever it may be. There's all sorts of kind of hacks or things that can happen with prayer. And none of these things are bad. I actually think many of them are incredibly helpful. And we'll talk more about that next week as we close out this series officially. But something that we see in this form of the Lord's Prayer and with this doxology on the back end of it is that our adoration, our praise, and our glory being given to God is not something that finds itself simply in one section of the prayer. It is not a category of the prayer as much as it is, is the entire framework of it. The entire framework of the Lord's Prayer, as practiced by the early church, is bookended by the praise of the God who is worthy. It begins with God's name being hallowed and an invitation for his kingdom to come, and it ends with the rejoicing that his name, that his power, that his glory, that his kingdom belongs to him. Our Father's name hallowed and his kingdom coming. This is where we begin. And his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This is where we are headed. Everything exists and operates. Our desire for our daily bread, our desire for forgiveness and the restoration of relationships between us and God and between us and the people around us. All of those things operate within the context of who God is and what God is like. Psalm 89 puts it this way, the heavens of yours, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. The world and all that it contains, that's you and me, you have founded them. And it's this sort of framing where it's not just a section of the prayer, but the framework of it that allows us to pray, not just with hope, 
but with confidence that God is actually able to do what he says he will do. Here's J.I. Packer again writing about this very thing. He says, prayer and praise are like a bird's two wings. With both working, you will soar, but with one out of action, you are earthbound. But birds should not be earthbound, nor Christians praiseless. Now I wonder if for many of us, the struggles that you and I have with prayer, when we sit down and go to prayer, when we try to build a habit of prayer, when we try to figure out what it looks like to have a life marked by prayer, what if our struggles with that prayer flow not from a lack of desire, not from a lack of hope that God would move and act and work in our lives, not from a lack of hope and belief and, and desire that Jesus would actually do something, would heal the hurts that are in our life, would, would work in our families, would work in our jobs, would work in our church, would work in whatever it is that we are doing, but rather the struggles flow from a lack of faith that he has actually the power to do it. That even though we might say we believe God can do anything and so we'll ask for anything, do we really believe that he could do it, that he has the power to do it? How many of us are like birds praying with our wings clipped? The other day, Jaleesa and I were getting out of our car and there was this bee that landed, um, and bee, not a wasp, so I didn't panic, I didn't scream, I didn't cry, and it landed um, kind of right on my like, stomach. And it was this weird moment where there's a bee on me and we saw this thing where it was like walking around a little bit, but it couldn't really fly. And eventually we took a leaf and we put it down on the ground and, and we took a closer look at it. Um, Jaleesa's super compassionate. So she's like, how do we save the life of this bee? Does it need water? Um, I think she was ready to like adopt this bee and bring it home with us. But, but we're looking at this bee and what it had was a big chunk of pollen on one of its legs and one of its wings. And I don't know if this is what it was because I am not by any means an expert on bees. But what it seemed to be was that this little bumblebee could not fly because one side of it seemed to be weighed down. And it seemed to be flapping one wing. And, and as I watched it on this little leaf, it kind of was moving around and around, but it couldn't really take off. Like it had all the desire in the world to get up and get going and go where it wanted to be and find more flowers to pollinate and all that kind of stuff. But with only one wing in action, it was just going around in circles. And just like that bumblebee, you and I feel like that sometimes, don't we? Like, isn't there times when we want so badly to pray, we want so badly for God to work and move in our lives, but we just feel like we're moving in circles? It just feels like we're going around and around and we're trying to see what God is doing. We're trying to have a habit of prayer. We're trying to make ourselves get up a little bit earlier. But for whatever reason, it just doesn't seem to be clicking. It just doesn't seem to be working. And yet there is a deep sense that as you listen to this, whether you have been a Christian for years and years and years and years, or whether you absolutely do not believe in God as you listen to this, and someone sent this to you, or, or you checked it out on YouTube, or whatever it may be, you're listening to this and you're going, I don't know if I believe in any of this stuff. There is something in us that cries out in prayer. Because even though that in nearly every discernible measure, the church in the West is in decline, the, the center of the Christian world is no longer the U.S. and Canada and Europe. It, it's moved on. It's, it's no longer there. Every stat you look at says there's not as many people going to church. Churches are smaller than ever before. People give less to churches than they did before. People don't trust the church. All these metrics, all these things that show, okay, it's less religious, it's less religious, it's less religious all around, except in one category, prayer. 
According to a Gallup research poll, more Americans will pray this week than will exercise, drive a car, have sex, or go to work. Because something in the human soul desires prayer. Something in the human soul, when we see things that aren't right or experience things that don't seem right or, or look at something beautiful, something draws us to prayer. Something draws us to say, okay, God has to be able to do something about this. And see, according to this poll, many Americans, many of whom would identify as not religious, would mark non-religious on a form, would actually say, I still pray if I feel stressed or if I feel overwhelmed or if it's what they're doing on my favorite sports team or whatever it may be. And it's not just people who consider themselves Christians. This is normal people living normal lives. This is your neighbors, your friends, people around. If you talk to someone and they're struggling, oftentimes we'll offer to pray for them. I very rarely have had someone who said, well, I'm not a Christian, don't pray for me. I don't believe in God, don't pray for me. It's why we feel a little bit uncomfortable, and yet we see all the time thoughts and prayers whenever there's a tragedy. There's, there's this desire built into the human soul that prayer is the natural response when things go wrong. And why would that be? Because in our lives, there are moments and seasons where we realize something that is incredibly heartbreaking to the modern Western mind that tells us we can have it all if we just do well enough is that no matter our education, no matter our technology, no matter the amount of money in our bank account, there are things that will happen that are not in your control. There are things that will happen that will show you this simple reality. You and I are not God. You and I are not the God of the universe. Try as we might, struggle as we might, do everything we can in our power to stay in control, we have to admit it, there are things that are outside of our control. When the car breaks down, when the company downsizes, when the economy cracks and all of a sudden the house purchase that we were so excited about a few months ago now seems absolutely terrifying. When a pandemic shuts down our plans, our dreams, our hopes for our futures, when we hear about shooting after shooting in the States and we look and we go, that doesn't make sense. I can't understand how could anyone do this thing? How could this be such a broken system? How could so many innocent lives be lost? When we get a bill in the mail, when, when we get the meeting with the doctor where the doctor does not have good news at all, these moments where we realize that no matter how hard we try to be, we are not God. And that's when everybody goes to prayer. Whether you believe in God or not, there's a switch that goes, that goes, oh God, help us. There must be a God out there. If God is out there, could he do something about this? And when the weight of the brokenness of the world's hit, we are left with nothing but to pray and hope and ask God to do something. 
Everyone becomes religious at least a little bit in tragedy, right? There's a story in the book of Acts when Paul is beginning his missionary journeys and, and he's going to these places and he's preaching the gospel and he lands in this place called Athens. And this place called Athens, well, well, it's you know the center of the Greek world. It's the center of arts and philosophy and, and people are smart and it's technologically advanced. And it's, it's not like those towns out in the countryside with all those you know country hicks and those kind of things. Like this is where the, the, the spiritual and philosophical elite hang out. And Paul goes there and he sees all these statues and one in particular, and, and this statue you can read about it in Acts 17, says it's a statue to an unknown God. So, so people here are so religious, they're so interested in philosophy and spirituality that, that, that they've got statues to God where they're like, I don't even know who that God is, but, but let's make a statue for them. And Paul sees this statue and he sees it says to an unknown God and, and he gathers around the people of Athens, the, the academic elite and all these people. And he says to them, I can see that you're religious. I can see that you're spiritual. I can see that you worship something. And then Paul goes on to give this incredible message where he says, let me tell you about the one who's worthy to be worshiped. Let me tell you about the one who has actually put life into your bodies who by him you live and breathe and have your being. Let me tell you what that God is like and what that God has done in the person and work of Jesus. It's this incredible sermon. What Paul has done is he's saying, there's something you worship. There's a natural sense in you to pray, to praise, to worship, to give glory to something, to ask something to help you when things are outside of your control. And he utilizes that and he says, okay, if that is there, let me tell you about the real God who you can pray to, who does listen, who does care for you, who does love you. And you might hear that and you might go, well, that was thousands of years ago. That's in a culture where people believe in like a pantheon of gods and there's a God for this and there's a God for that and, and you've got this thing figured out and you've got that thing figured out. It, it's thousands of years ago. That's not like today. That, that's not like right now. People are beyond religion and spirituality now, right? We, we don't have idols like that now. There's not statues in the middle of the street. If you walk around Maple Ridge um, on a nice summer day, it's beautiful summer, you're going out, you get a nice coffee from somewhere, you're walking around, you will not see random statues all over the place to these different gods. You will see a weird mechanical horse, but you won't see anything beyond that. There's not religious idols all over the place, right? You might hear that and, and you might say, there's just not that. that. That happens in some places in the world. I remember when Jalisa and I were younger, we spent um, almost a month backpacking the country of Thailand. We had some really good friends who had spent a year as missionaries there and they helped us plan and prepare for this trip. They talked about the beauty of this place and the beauty of the people who live there. This amazing opportunity came up and so we were able to go and spend some time there moving around um, this country of Thailand from the city like Bangkok all around to these small villages and all these kind of things and, and really just getting to see a place we'd never seen before. But I'll never forget our friends when they were talking to us. I remember my friend at one point saying, you know, one thing you need to understand is there's a lot of spirituality in Thailand. There is a major um, source of, of people praying to different things, having forms of spirituality, and most of it is not Christian. And, and what he explained is that there was this sense when he was there oftentimes doing ministry, and they were working with um, people who had been caught out of um, sex trafficking and human trafficking and were helping to care for them and disciple them and all these things. And what he said is, is it's not just a physical battle, it's a spiritual one. 
And he talked about this and I remember thinking, okay, that makes sense. That happens in a different country. I remember um, one day when we were in Bangkok, just as tourists, we went to this place called Wat Arun. It's this majestic Buddhist temple. It, it's huge. It's covered in gold. It, it's got tourists all over the place. It, it's this amazing, beautiful place and, and tourists are everywhere and they're exploring around, but there's also signs everywhere. They talk about how important it is that you respect what people believe and that people are here praying and petitioning and all these kind of things. And I remember as we visited it, I wanted to just separate those things out and say, okay, well, I'm just here to be a tourist. It's not about the spirituality of it. It's not about that kind of thing. I'm just here to see a cool looking building and tour around a different country in a different place. But I remember being there and seeing people pray to a different God and and seeing all these signs and seeing all these golden shrines and feeling, oh man, the weight of, of this spirituality, the weight of this kind of thing. There is something being worshipped here that is not God. There is something being worshipped here that is not the God of the Bible, that is not Jesus. And I remember feeling the, the discomfort of that. And, and I remember thinking, well, uh, that's not the case back in Canada. When I go home, we don't have idols like that. We don't have things like that. We're not going to see people praying or doing these things that would make us uncomfortable as Christians in the West. And I think I thought that was the case. But as author David Foster Wallace points out, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. You might say, well, not here. We're proper Canadians. We're polite. Nobody worships anything except maybe being polite. People don't go to church. They're just too busy. It's just not all that important. Most people don't have religion as something that's a really important part of their lives. A few of us do. They gather on Sundays. They have some buildings around town. They do their thing. But, but for the most part, Canadians are not a religious people. We're a post-Christian, a post-religious society, right? We're smarter, we're more enlightened, and, and we can handle situations without having to pray to some fairy tale God up in the sky to solve those problems for us, can't we? If we just get the right political system in, if we just figure everything out, if we just navigate things just the right way, if we can figure out how not to offend anyone, then we can handle everything ourselves. We don't need gods or idols for people to ask for help. But here's how Pastor Timothy Keller defines an idol. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look to and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I will feel significant and secure. And so with that definition, let me ask you again, what determines your significance and your security? What determines the value and meaning and purpose of your life? And you might listen to this and you might say, well, nothing. I'm just a human. I'm just trying to live my life. I'm just trying to go about my days. Well, here's a question for you. How much anxiety do you feel when you can't find your iPhone? and you don't know where it is, or who's got it, or what they're looking at on your eye, or, or, or anything like that? Or, or do you find yourself reading the news and feeling totally overwhelmed? One article about where the economy's at is, sends you over the edge? How deeply is your soul affected by what happens in the political parties, whether it be here or with the government in our neighbors to the south? 
what happens in your heart when you scroll Instagram and see everything that looks better, cooler, fancier, more beautiful than your life seems to be? Or what happens in your mind when you see the cost of groceries, the cost of gas, the cost of things, and you wonder, I don't know if I'm going to be able to provide and care for my family. I don't know how the economic impact of a years-long pandemic is, is going to go for me. See, all of us have things that, if we really admit it, control our safety and our security. The other day, Jalisa and I were having lunch, and at the time, we had actually taken a ferry to go get a car that had broken down, and it had broken down in the Sunshine Coast. And so it's this crazy story of getting there where we've seen tons of God moving and God providing and, and the, the power of community and kindness and generosity and all these different things. All those things were in place. But, but Jalisa and I at one point sat down for lunch, and I, and I just remember feeling so overwhelmed, and we were having this conversation and I was getting emotional and I was getting worked up and I was going, I just I can't handle it all. There, there's too much going on. There's too many things that feel hard to deal with. There's too many things that I can't control. There's too many things that I just can't get on top of. There's too many things. I can't handle it. I can't handle it. I can't handle it. And so I'm trying to work more and do more and accomplish more and figure everything out and have everything work according to my plan. And Jalisa said this, awful but incredibly true thing to me. She said, when do you think that you're going to be able to have control over everything? You can't. And I remember having this conversation going back and forth into my mind thinking, well, next week things will slow down. Well, well, if I could just do this, then I could have control over this situation. If I could just figure this out, then I'd be okay. If I could just handle this a little better or have this time off or go on this vacation or have this amount of money in our bank account or if I could get this kind of car, then this kind of thing would never happen or whatever it may be. My mind's running on all these things trying to get control of my situation. But prayer, man, prayer pushes past all those false ideas of control. Prayer shows us that we cannot save ourselves, but it draws us into communion with the God who actually can. Just as Daniel showed us last week with his illustration of the boxes, prayer is how we find ourselves in the reality that we are in Christ, that the Holy Spirit lives inside us, that God the Father looks at us as his children that there is something that God is doing in us and around us that we might be safe and secure, not, as, not in what our circumstances are, but in who God is and how he loves us. Richard Foster in his book on prayer writes this, your prayer must be turned inwards, not towards a God of heaven, nor towards a God far off, but towards a God who is closer to you than you are aware. What Foster's saying there is not that there is not a God in heaven. What he's saying there is that God is present with you right now. That to pray to God is not to throw a prayer out as far and as long and as wide as you can get it and hope that maybe God catches it. That if you're righteous enough, if you're moral enough, if you've done enough good things, if you've been to church enough times, if you're a good enough person, then maybe God will hear your prayer. No, what he's saying is that God is so close that to pray is to simply be in communion with the one who is already with you. When our prayer is framed with a confession of God's goodness, power, and glory, it reorients us to find ourselves not chasing God's love, not wondering if God might provide for us, 
not seeing God as some far off genie that maybe we could convince to do something good for us, but rather that God's love is the ocean that we swim in, that we are so surrounded by the goodness, the glory, and the beauty of God that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are in Christ. Foster, again, in the same book, writes this, real prayer comes not from gritting our teeth, but from falling in love. Does your prayer feel like falling in love? When you sit down in a chair or outside in the woods or as you go on a walk and you seek to commune with the God of the universe who knows the number of hairs on your head and loves you, does it feel like falling in love? Or does it feel like the worst thing on the to-do list? Because our desire for you is that it would feel like falling in love. See, we aren't doing a series on the Lord's Prayer because we think a certain number of minutes is what makes you a good enough Christian. We're not doing a series on the Lord's Prayer because we think we can give you 15 hacks that's going to make you a better prayer person and you got to pray for this and that and the other thing. And here's a million things that make prayer incredibly complicated and stressful. And oh my goodness, if I don't have four hours every morning to wake up and pray that I'm not really devoted to Jesus. That's not the point of this series. The point of this series and any series is not to create guilt or shame to make you feel like you're not doing enough. It's to invite you into what prayer is meant to be, and that's communion with God. To be present with the one who has created the universe and also loves you. And next week, our sermon as we really close this series is going to be all about the practical, what that can look like how we can put our phones to the side, how we can actually spend time in prayer, what it looks like to not be distracted, all those kind of things. We'll get to the practical piece. But what we want you to know today is that we have walked through this series, we have walked through this prayer, because we want for each person in our church and in the city of Maple Ridge to experience what prayer is meant to be. Joyful, grateful, worshipful enjoyment of God's presence and work in your life. We want you to experience prayer that feels like falling in love. As one pastor asked, he said, is prayer upending the way you live, or are you just trying to use prayer to sponsor the way you already live? Is prayer the space where Jesus and his love is remaking you from the inside out, or are you just asking God to give you a spiritual boost so you can go on doing your own thing? See, prayer should not be exhausting, discouraging, and complicated, but it might be uncomfortable. It might poke at our idols. It might poke at those idols like control for me this week or, or whatever it may be for you. But like a hard conversation with a good friend where, where tough questions are asked and the truth is spoken in love and we walk away from it feeling grateful for that friendship, grateful for that thing, but challenged to make a change or challenged to change the way that we are living. That is what prayer can be. And so when we frame our experience of prayer with God's kingdom, God's power, and God's glory, it not only brings a deeper level of joy to prayer itself, but an acknowledgement that, as Tim Keller writes, all true prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry or fearful the experiences it traverses, ends up in praise. See, whatever you're praying for is actually an opportunity to move you from whatever emotion you are feeling or whatever suffering you are experiencing or whatever fear you are battling towards what the author of Hebrews calls fixing your eyes on Jesus. Or the way I heard one person put it, sitting in prayer and allowing God's love to be near to you. 
to look at God loving you. That, that prayer could be the space where we become so aware of God's presence, God's goodness, and God's work in our life that we'd be able to know what He is doing. Whatever you're praying for is an opportunity to move to that. And when our prayers are framed by the character of God, we are inevitably drawn to the ultimate action and work of God, and that is the gospel, the sending of Jesus to save us. If you go read Paul and what he writes in Romans 8, which I think is the single best kind of section to encapsulate the beauty and the power and the majesty of our God as played out in the life of Jesus and the gospel, We see Paul begin this chapter, right? He says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It begins with this thing. Okay, I'm praying that there is no condemnation for me. I don't have to feel guilt. I don't have to feel shame. And this comes right after Romans 7. He's saying, I do feel guilt. I do feel shame. I do feel like I keep messing things up. And he carries on through chapter 8 and he says, here's what God's done through Jesus to make it possible that, that he's conquered the law of sin and death by bringing Jesus into the equation. That God's spirit, because of what Jesus Jesus has done lives in me that that as Romans 8 uh, can't remember the verse off the top of my head says that we by the spirit that lives in us because of Jesus can proclaim that God is our Abba God is our father God is our dad we don't have to be afraid but we can face a future that is uncertain we can face suffering we can face struggle and know that we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. It's this buildup of understanding that all these things that I'm facing, all these things that I'm struggling with, build towards what reality. When we look at Jesus and what he's done, the final verse says, nothing can separate me from the love of Jesus. That is the end of prayer, which leads us to praise So we pray, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. So of course you can provide my daily bread. Of course you can forgive me. Of course you can help me to engage my sin and other sin and heal relationships and be in real, genuine community. Of course sin, Satan, and death have been defeated and that can be experienced in my life. And this moves our hearts not simply to go through a routine because we know it's what we're supposed to do. This moves our hearts to experience who God is and how he loves us. To reorient ourselves and our lives in the context of who God is. To properly treat God as God. But it is more than just a good theology of prayer. It is more than just knowing the right thing to think about prayer and how to pray. It's deeper than checking prayer off a to-do list or considering yourself on a ladder of spiritual maturity based on how many minutes you pray or what kind of big words you use when you pray. Tim Keller again says that prayer turns theology into experience. And it is only when we experience the power of God in our lives and not as some far off and disconnected force that we can actually be changed. Because that is where we change. That is where we grow. That is where we begin to let go of those monies in which we try to frame our lives with the counterfeit idols of our culture that we live in. There might not be idols up around Maple Ridge, but I'm telling you right now, there's the God of the iPhone. There's the glorification of so many different things, of money, of having enough, of having whatever you want. He who has the most toys wins. 
of sex and sexuality is the greatest glory and identifier of who we are. And what prayer does is it removes all those things. It reorients us around the reality that God is shaping our lives in a more beautiful way than any idol ever could. Dallas Willard, the theologian, writes that Jesus teaches us how to be in prayer what we are in life and how to be in life what we are in prayer. How do we become the kind of people that are marked by the Lord's prayer? who trust what God is doing in that. Here's how Jesus prays for us in John 17. Jesus prays, he says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. That's what Pastor Daniel told us about last week. They they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. My friends, what if our lives, our desires, our hopes, and our dreams were not shaped by the cultural idols around us? By the idea of having more money, by the idea of having a comfortable life, by the pursuit of pleasure that only lasts for a moment but leaves people feeling empty and depressed and anxious? What if our lives and our desires were shaped by the Holy Spirit changing us from the inside out? G.K. Chesterton famously said, he who marries the spirit of the times will soon find himself a widower. Our world is filled with broken and burnt up wreckage of idols which could not live up to that which they promised. The promises of if you can just sleep with the right person, you'll be happy. The promises of if you can just get enough money, everything will be okay. The promises of if you can just get your guy into office and have your political party run the show, then you can have everything that you desire. All these are idols which cannot deliver on the promises that they offer. But Jesus, well, Jesus is a king of a kingdom. And as the prophet Isaiah writes, of his kingdom, there will be no end. God keeps his promises. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. We can utter our amen knowing that God is a God who is able to do, as Paul puts it, immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. God can heal a broken body that a doctor cannot. God can redeem a relationship that anyone would look at and say, it's too far gone. It's too messed up. It's too busted up. There's no way they could ever heal. God can change a life. God can change a church. God can change a city. God can change our city. God can bring about a generation of leaders, people right here in Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows and across the lower mainland who will follow him and desire Jesus and change the world around them because of what he is doing in their lives. God can bring revival because his is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And so for God's glory, we can declare amen over the promises of God. And amen does not just the way we hang up a prayer. It's not the little red button on our iPhone that just goes, okay, that means we're done. No, amen is a declaration. It's saying, so be it. Not, I hope so. Not, it would be nice. 
Not, ah, I hope this turns out. It's saying, so be it. May it be so. J.I. Packer again writes this. Amen expresses not just a wish, but a committed confidence. So it shall be. So may I invite you today to experience the amen of the Lord's prayer. The gift of this doxology that frames all that God is doing, all that God is working, all that what it means to pray in the light of not who we are, but who God is. That this might be your experience reality. That all that is contained in the incredible prayer of how Jesus teaches us how to pray is actually possible in your life. Not through our work or our moral goodness, but through the kindness of Jesus, our Savior, at work in our lives. God's kingdom will come It will come to pass in our days, in our weeks, in our neighborhoods, in our world. God's will can be done. Justice can roll forth like a river. There can be redemption and healing in a world that feels too broken. There can be pockets and colonies of the kingdom of God breaking in. We as a church can be that. Our daily bread can be provided. In the midst of what feels like a totally shaky economy, God can provide what we need. That we could see the sparrow who eats and know that we are more loved than that sparrow. That God loves us. That our relationships can be healed. That we don't have to live by shame and fear. We don't have to wonder if God loves us that we can know through what Jesus has done on the cross that we have been forgiven, that we have been justified. Firstly, with God, and then beyond that, that we can feel and experience reconciliation and restoration in relationships with our families, with our friends, with our enemies by the work of Jesus. And that we can know that evil can be defeated and indeed that it has that Satan has been conquered, that his head is crushed under the foot of our Jesus. That Jesus, through his work on the cross, through the power of his resurrection, shows us that we too can kill our sin and grow in our holiness degree by degree of glory. And how could all these things be? How could the kingdom of God come like this? How could God's will be done like this? How could God give us our daily bread? How could we be forgiven for our sin? How could we forgive others for how they've hurt us? How could we be delivered from temptation and evil? How could these things be? And the answer is the doxology of the Lord's prayer. All because the kingdom is God's. The power is God's. And the glory is God's. And all God's promises find their yes in our Savior, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are and how you love us. You are kind and you are gracious and you are good. And so today, Lord Jesus, we rejoice in who you are. We rejoice, Father, that all your promises find their yes in Christ. And that all that the Lord's Prayer contains invites us into a relationship with you that is so much more than a task or a habit. And so God, we ask that you would bring that about in our lives. Might we, like the Lord's Prayer, be framed and live in the context of your goodness, your glory, your kingdom, and your power. And might you work in our lives today. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you are doing. And we thank you, God, that it's in your kingdom that we live. So we rejoice today. We celebrate today. 
that yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever. Amen.